Let's pray. Father, I pray that that song would be so true for us. Lord, whether we're there today or not, or we want to be there more than anything, we do want to desire you more than anything. So, Father, I pray that for our own hearts this morning, you would help that song to be true, that you would be our greatest treasure. Lord, like Paul said in Philippians 3, that we consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, may that be true. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's even better. Father, we pray that as we continue in worship, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, just another reminder that please fill out the Wednesday night survey if you haven't done so already. Uh, We are strongly considering adding Wednesday night programming for all ages, both kids and adults, starting sometime this fall and continuing into the spring. So we would love your feedback to know if that's something you're interested in, would participate in and come to, and even help volunteer, because it would take a number of volunteers to pull that off for sure. So uh, if you're able to, please fill that out today, because today is the last day to do so. And you can do so by going to our website, fmcburn.com, going to resources and forms. You can find it there, or going to our Facebook page, Uh, You can also, in our bulletin, find the website address as well as a QR code, which we found means quick reading or quick response. I forget now. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at Nicole because we already forgot it. So, Um, but there is a QR code that you can scan and figure out what that means and take the survey. So, and if you're not techie at all, too, there is a paper version up here that you can grab one of these, fill out, fold it, and put it right back here. There's even some up in the upper level for the balcony people too, in the first row. So you can fill one out there and leave it up there and we'll make sure we get it. So that's the Wednesday night survey stuff. All right, Galatians 2. We've been in Galatians 2 for several weeks. This is our last sermon in Galatians 2 because really this sermon is kind of part three of the last two weeks. And we've been talking about what justification is, justification by faith, and how it impacts us. So let me just remind you briefly, this is Galatians 2, 15 and 16. And when I get to that word justified, I want you to shout it out together with me, okay? So this is what Paul says. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified. You can shout, it's okay. By the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified. There you go, by faith in Christ. That was really good. And not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Woo, that was good. So justification is mentioned three times quickly in these verses. I mean, those verses are really the heart of what Galatians is about, that the moment you and I believe in Jesus Christ, justification is God's act where he declares us righteous in his sight the moment you and I have faith in Jesus Christ and not works. So God, as the judge, when we believe, he declares us righteous, even though we've done nothing to earn it, even though we're not actually righteous in what we've done, but we are righteous because of Christ. And there's two parts to that. Justification is just as if I never sinned. Say that with me. Just as if I never sinned. So God forgives us. We are pardoned. Our 
old record is wiped clean. But it's not just that. It's also just as if I live the life Christ lived. Say that with me. Just as if I live the life Christ lived. So it's not just the removal of a negative, our sin. But we get an incredible positive. We get the righteousness of Christ in our life, credited to our life, even though we never did it. That happens the moment that you and I believe in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite preachers says, justification is not just go. I mean, if if God only forgave us of our sins, you say, you're forgiven, now go. But it's also come. Because we have the righteousness of Christ, God invites us into his presence. When he sees us, he now sees his beautiful son, Jesus Christ. So that's what justification is. And we've talked about how it also impacts us. We've mentioned two ways so far. Number one, why don't you read this out loud with me too? It changes our identity and stops all our efforts of self-justification. So if you and I really believe that we're saved by faith and grace and not by works, we're going to stop striving to try to make our own identity and prove ourselves, whether in a very religious way by trying to earn our salvation or a very non-religious way by trying to look to things like money or sexuality or romance or career to justify our existence. And then the second way is it gets rid of all the what? The isms in our heart. Isms like racism and classism and discriminationism, if that's a word. All these isms that we struggle with as a people because we're trying to justify our heart and prop our own self up and manufacture our own identity. But if way number one is true, then that will lead to way number two. We will not look down on other people of other races and classes and cultures. And someone even shouted out Amishism this morning in first service because we sometimes look down on the Amish. There is one ism I didn't mention last week that many have brought up to me. One of the concerns that several people have brought up to me at our church is that we struggle as a church with cliques. So you could call it maybe clickism. And whether you think that's true or not, I mean, I think it is hard in any church you go to, especially a small town, to sometimes break into a church. Even if it's unintentional, you know, sometimes we, we kind of stick with our own people we know because it's a pretty big church. You know, you want to talk to people you know, and it can be hard to see the people who are, are not fitting in or breaking in. So I think that's something I want to pray for right now that justification by faith would even tear down any sense of clickism, if I can say that, here at First Missionary Church. Sound good? Would you join me in praying for that? Well, Father, I pray for these first two points, really, that the idea of justification by faith would get hammered down into our hearts. Lord, I know that Martin Luther said we have to kind of pound it into our heads because we are prone to wander. We're prone to try to prove our righteousness before you. We're prone to try to manufacture our own identity And that causes us to look down on all sorts of people, Lord, who are different than us. And I pray that that would just not be the case, Father, that we would be so secure in Christ that we don't have to look down on others, that we would be so secure in our justification and status that when we see somebody who's different or even someone that annoys us, we would realize that they need the gospel just as much as we do, that I am a sinner just as much as they are, and I am in need of Christ just as much as they are. And I pray especially for this sense of cliques that Some people have felt at our church that, Lord, you would break down those walls for whatever reason, Lord, that you would help people to feel a part of things, and that we would be intentional to to pay attention to who is connecting and who is not. Lord, help us even to be like um, 
the situation in Galatians 2 where they were eating with one another, yet Peter failed to eat with the Gentiles. May that not be so. May we even eat with one another and share our lives with one another because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may the world know that we are Christians by our love for one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the final way, way number three, if we really believe that we are saved by faith, it will enable us to identify with and minister to the poor, the weak, and the needy, and the broken. Say that with me. It enables us to identify with and minister to the poor, the weak, and the needy. This is really fast in verse 10, kind of sandwiched in this entire chapter of justification by faith and that we're saved by grace and not works. It's a really interesting verse where Paul says that all that they, the Jerusalem apostles, asked was that we should continue to remember the what? The poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So that's one quick verse in a chapter that's heavy on justification by faith. And I find that really interesting because it brings this connection that we are justified by faith. Yet, if we're truly justified by faith, we're still going to continue to remember the poor. Even though that doesn't save us, only Jesus does, yet a life that is truly justified by faith will spend its life serving the poor, the weak, and the broken, and the needy at some level. You know, it's interesting, right before this, in verses 1 to 9, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and, and they get their gospel confirmed by the Jerusalem apostles. Not that he needed it, but they wanted to be on the same page, and, and they declared that we are saved by faith alone, that you must not do anything else to be saved, and yet they say this very verse, that we should continue to remember the poor. And then right after this is that famous confrontation where Paul confronts Peter, because Peter is separating himself from eating with the Gentiles, and Paul's like, if you do this, you are communicating to them that you are adding to the gospel, that you must be a Jew, really, to be a Christian, or you must follow the food laws in the Old Testament to be a Christian. No, we're only saved by faith, yet right in the middle is this very verse. So we're going to explore that today. How does justification by faith actually help us minister to those in need? What is the connection, and how does it help us? So let's look at the connection first. Here's my statement number one. I have two statements in this part. We are justified by faith alone, but it is not a faith that remains alone. So even though we are saved by faith alone, Jesus did it all, it is not a faith that will ultimately remain alone because it will lead to a life of good works. In other words, point number two, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved what? For good works. I mean, it's amazing what a preposition can do there, but it's important. We are not saved by good works. They are not the ground of our justification, but we are saved for good works. They are the result of our justification. So much so that if somebody claims to be a believer in Jesus, yet their life does not change in any level, then it makes us seriously wonder, did they really believe in Jesus in the first place? Because a person who's truly been justified by faith alone, it will result in fruit and good works. Not that those save you again, but that's the result. To spell this out a little clearer, the book of James is all about this. I found it interesting reading James in connection with Galatians. So Galatians is heavy on justification by faith. 
And yet James is like, well, if you're really saved by faith, you're going to do something as a result. So here's what it says in James. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is what? Dead. So true faith will show itself in what? Deeds. Not that those earn salvation again, but it's the result. He goes on to say, actually before this, in verse 14, James 2, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And the answer is no. And then he gives a really practical example that I'm talking about. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. So you see what James does there? We are saved by faith alone, but it is not a faith that remains alone. In fact, he gives a very practical example. If there's somebody in need, if we really care and say we care about them, it will result in good works of helping them. You can find this connection all over the Bible. I encourage you to read passages like Isaiah 58 or Isaiah chapter 1. So Isaiah 1 or 58, both chapters. Or Matthew 25, that famous parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus has the sheep and the goats before him and he separates them. And do you know how he separates them or why? It's all based on the criteria. Did they help those in need? Did they visit those in prison? Did they help the sick and the needy and the broken? And Jesus says, when you did such things, you did it for who? Or for whom, I'm sorry. You did it for me, Jesus says. Not that those things save you again. I'm going to pound that in your head. But such things are the result of a life that's truly been justified by faith. They are evidence that you've truly believed in Jesus Christ. So that's the connection, but here's the challenge. How do we actually live a life that serves others, that serves the poor and the needy and the broken and the weak and really anyone who's a human being? Because let's face it, when you deal with people, it's challenging. When you especially minister to the broken and the needy, boy, it can be tiring and draining. It can be complex and complicated. I mean, how many of you have ever wanted somebody to change more than they wanted to change, yet you minister to them and help them, and you're getting frustrated because they're not changing as much as you think and want them to change. It's probably the story of parenting in some way. <laughs> I mean, we, I think we've all been there. Some of you are there. Some of you are burnt out on people, probably cynical that, you know, maybe people can change, but not really that much. <laughs> How do we have a life motivated to actually serve those in need? Because we all know we should do it. The Bible talks a ton about it. We all know there's endless opportunities in our community, in our county, and in the world. There are so many causes that it's like, what do you even get involved in? I don't think it's knowledge that's stopping us or opportunity. I think the problem is that M word up on screen, motivation. So how does it actually help us, motivate us? Before I even get into point number one, let me tell you how we as pastors sometimes wrongly motivate you. Instead of motivating you with the gospel and with grace, we motivate you with what? Guilt. Some of you know that. <laughs> you know, we'll say things like, well, you have so much and they have so little. You should therefore help them. Or I remember as a kid, you know, your parent always says, 
you know, to eat your vegetables, there are starving kids in fill in the blank, trying to guilt you into eating your vegetables. And it sometimes works, but not for long. (laughs) Or sometimes we motivate people out of duty. You know this is your duty to help those in need, so do it. All right? Don't you feel motivated after I said that? Just do it. But those two things, duty and guilt, they won't motivate us, at least for long. And really, God does not want to serve us to serve out of a heart that's like that. I mean, the Pharisees were, the religious leaders were known for giving to the poor and helping the poor, but their hearts were far from God. So how do we serve with the right motivation? How do we do this so we do this in a way that lasts and we persevere in this? Because let's face it, it is tough. I mean, even I as a pastor struggle with this. How do I continue to help people? It's challenging. Well, I think the answer is justification by faith. It's the gospel, and it actually motivates us in a couple different ways. Way number one is that if we really understand justification by faith, it will give us a new attitude for those in need. It gives us a new attitude. One of the best books I've read on this subject is by Tim Keller, and it's called Generous Justice. And he talks about this theme, how God's grace, how justification by faith makes us people who are concerned about the poor and giving justice and giving people help that need it. Those two ideas are connected. And he brings up the very famous verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Why don't you read this out loud with me too? It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So who's blessed, this verse says? The poor in spirit. So not necessarily the financially poor, but almost all scholars say that what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is that those who are truly a part of God's kingdom have to recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They have to recognize their neediness, that the only thing that you and I can contribute to our salvation is our sin and our neediness. So such people who realize their poverty, spiritually speaking, Those are the kind of people who will have the kingdom of God, Jesus says. But let's suppose you are not poor in spirit. What might might we call you then? Suppose you might think, well, I'm not really that bad. I'm kind of a good person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so on the other side over there in the balcony. Who knows where, yeah? (laughs) Sorry, balcony people. I'm not really that bad. I haven't really broken God's law that much, you know? And then you look at other people and you say, well, those are the bad people. And if they would just get their life together like me, what kind of person are you? You're not poor in spirit. What might we call you? Well, Tim Keller has a great term that's always stuck with me. He calls us middle class in spirit. Do you know what the middle class are known for? I mean, every economic class is kind of known for certain traits, whether rightly or wrongly. Middle class people are known for working hard, being responsible, making good decisions. You know, you get what you work for. What you work for is what you, you know, you earn it. It's yours. And if you didn't get that, you know, you didn't work hard enough for it. Some of those traits are wonderful when it comes to working. But those traits can be horrible. Let me say it again. Horrible when it comes to our spiritual life. Because if you're middle class in spirit, how do you think you're going to look at the down and out and the needy and the weak? You're going to say, come on, get your life together. 
Be responsible like me. Work a little bit harder. If you would just work harder and be more responsible, and I understand there can be a dimension of that for sure. But if that's how we're really viewing people, are we really going to minister to them the gospel of Jesus Christ? No way. Instead, if you're poor in spirit, when you see someone in need, it's going to change your attitude towards them. Here's how he says it. When you see a person in need, you will see their tattered clothes and think all of my righteousness is like a filthy rag too. But in Christ, we can be clothed in the robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are poor and needy, you cannot say to them, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus had to intervene for you, spiritually speaking. And you can't say to someone, I'm not gonna help you because you got yourself in this mess. You know, deal with it. Because what if Jesus would have said that to us? You got yourself into this mess too. You deserve condemnation and guilt and hell. But Jesus moved into our neighborhood. He helped us. He lifted us out of our poverty, spiritually speaking. So in other words, when you encounter someone in need, it's like looking in a mirror. When you see them, you see yourself. You see your neediness before God. And you see that you need God's intervention, just like they need intervention and help. In fact, I would say there is no you in them. It's just us now. So the first one is that justification by faith will give us a new attitude toward those in need. But not just that. Number two, this is the last one. It gives us a new attitude toward what group of people? Ourselves. Justification by faith gives us a new attitude towards ourselves. I go back to the book of James again, because this sermon, I'm kind of branching out from Galatians. <clears throat> book of James chapter one says this, believers in humble circumstances ought to take what? Take pride in your high position. But the rich, those who are well off in life, should take pride in their, hum take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Do you hear what James is doing there? He's writing to Christians, and he's applying the gospel a little bit different. He's saying if you are in humble circumstances, maybe you're in need, maybe you're broken, you need to think of the good news of the gospel. Because the world is telling you how horrible you are, that you are your bank account, that you haven't arrived, but in Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. In Christ, you are his beloved son. In Christ, you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, Scripture says. So if you are here this morning in humble circumstances, God would tell you, take pride in your high position, spiritually speaking. But then look at what he tells the rich. And by the way, if you live in America, at some level, globally speaking, we are all the rich, even if you feel like you don't have much money. But the rich, he says, should take pride in their what? What's the word there? humiliation. You see what he's doing there? He's applying the gospel a little bit differently. If the world is telling you that you've arrived, that you're awesome, that you are your bank account and you've succeeded in that standard, you need to take pride in how horrible of a person you are and how much you need the gospel and how much of a sinner you are because the world is bringing you up. And if you're not careful, pride comes before a fall. And so the James applies the gospel a little bit differently there. No matter where you're at this morning, the gospel helps you apply it and justification by faith to your attitude towards yourself so that, so that you won't feel superior towards others, 
Because let's face it, if you feel superior towards someone in need, are you really gonna help them? Are they really gonna feel ministered to if you feel superior to them? No, they'll, they'll know it that you don't like them, that you think you're better than them. The gospel will humble you and say, well, you need the gospel just as much as they do. But it also helps us too if we feel inferior to people The gospel raises us up and and makes us realize, you know what, I don't have to be intimidated to reach out to this person or let this person into my group or or to help somebody because the gospel says I am rich in Christ. So justification by faith, rightly understood, will give us a new attitude toward those in need and toward ourselves. I mentioned earlier about being middle class in spirit and how dangerous that can be. And I recognize that when it comes to serving those in need, there are all sorts of complicated questions to answer, and it takes a lot of wisdom to know how to really help someone without hurting them or enabling them. In fact, there's a great book called When Helping Hurts that I encourage you to check out at some point, but just don't be overwhelmed by it because they need to write a sequel, When Helping Helps, (laughs) to it as well, because you can kind of be overwhelmed. How do you really help people? I want to close today by not overcomplicating the issue and just thinking again about this connection between the gospel or justification by faith and helping those in need. Because remember I said, if I, push, if I push the guilt button, is that going to work in your life? If I push the duty button, you need to do this, is that really going to motivate you to keep serving those in need or, or just helping anyone? This applies to anyone. No, the answer, I think, is the grace button. So let me push this button in your life. And actually, this this quote is from a young Scottish minister in the 1800s. And he was responding to his church members who came up to him and had a problem with ministering to those in need. Listen to the objections they voiced and see if you can relate to them, okay? You ready? Objection number one that somebody told him, my money and resources are my own. Why should I give them to those in need? Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where would we have been, spiritually speaking? Or here's another objection that you may have thought or voiced. The poor are undeserving, or that person is undeserving of my help. They don't deserve it. I want to give to to those that deserve it. Christ might have said the same thing. Look at all those wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these undeserving people? I'm going to give to the deserving ones here on earth. Which if that's true, none of us would get his help. He gave his blood for you and me, undeserving people. Here's the final objection. The poor may abuse my help or the person I'm helping may abuse it or manipulate me or take advantage of me. Well, Christ might have said the same thing, yet with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample upon his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning, and yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christian, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor and the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy when you do so, and you will be too. It is not your money I want, Christ says, but your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, we're gonna apply this by taking communion together. I think this is the best way to really push 
that grace and gospel button in our lives. And just a reminder that communion is open to anyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member or even a regular attender to partake. Thank you. You just have to be a believer, someone who's trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and treasure. And if that's not you here this morning, we are so glad you're here, but we ask that you just watch what's going on and just think about what we're doing right now as a way to honor us and honor the Lord this morning. Greg, if you could come forward, I've asked Greg, one of our deacons, to help me with communion today. He's going to be reading some scripture um, and also praying here in a little bit. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23 through 28. Greg's going to go ahead and read that. For I received from the Lord what I, also, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup in the Lord of the Lord in the unworthy manner, those who do that will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves, therefore, before they eat of this bread and drink from the cup. Amen. Thank you. Well, I want to invite the ushers forward. And Greg, if you would just lead us in a time of prayer for communion, and then we'll distribute the elements. Father, we thank you for this time that we have heard your word proclaimed. We ask that you, especially now, send your spirit to convict us of our own sins and help us to cherish our position in you. Help us to think highly of you, most highly of you, and that your free gift of salvation and your justification by faith would apply to each one of us. And for those of us who have sinned and not yet asked for forgiveness, we pray that we would do that right now and that we would be free with our position in Christ to partake of this communion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So our ushers are going to go ahead and pass out the elements, both the, the bread and the cup. Please wait to partake until we take together. So please wait to partake until we take together. And Nicole's going to lead us in a song during this time.
moment here we're going to take the bread the bread reminds us of Jesus body which was broken for us for you and for me in our place so let me pray for the bread and then we'll partake together father I thank you that your son gave his life Lord including his body Lord, he was tortured and beaten and broken on the cross for us in our place Lord, taking the sin that we deserve Lord he joyfully for the joy set before him endured the cross and did this for us in our place so that we may have life and forgiveness and justification, Father. So we thank you for your son's body broken for us. Amen. So the word says this, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's partake together the bread. And I want to pray for the cup now, too. 
Father, I thank you for your son's blood that was shed. Your word says that it is, represents uh, the new covenant in his blood. Well, we know that scripture is clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that because of your divine holiness and perfection, that there is none like you, sin must be paid for, or that someone must pay. And we praise you that your son paid the sin for us. He took the sin on himself and shed his blood. And not only did it accomplish your justice, but it began a new covenant with us where we now can have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, reminding us of who Christ is and pointing us to Christ and reminding us of our great wealth in Christ. So Father, we thank you for your son's blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So scripture says in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So let's drink the cup together in remembrance of Jesus' blood. And then scripture says, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here verse. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 gets exactly at what I'm talking about, how God's grace enables us to serve those in need. The Apostle Paul says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's on the cross. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Thanks for coming. You are dismissed.